0: We've come in our sermons in the book of Joshua to chapter 10, beginning to read at verse 16 and reading to the end of the chapter. This is the sort of passage in the Word of God that isn't very often preached by ministers nowadays, but I hope I can show you how wonderfully important it is to our understanding of our lives, your life and my life. The first great battle against the southern states of Canaan was a divine triumph as the Lord fought for Israel and routed the five-city confederation that had attacked Gibeon. The remainder of chapter 10 narrates the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Beth Horon and then the conquest of the rest of southern Canaan. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machadah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Joshua did not want the route of his enemies to be left incomplete because the army had stopped its pursuit to deal with the five kings. The kings could wait. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, an example again of the hyperbole uh, characteristic of these descriptions of battles and victories, they were wiped out. But there was a remnant that uh, returned to their cities. Then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machadah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. The idiom, literally, no one sharpened his tongue against Israel as a way of saying that there was no one in that part of Canaan left who dared oppose Israel. It is possible, it has been suggested by some, That the idiom should read, no Israelite suffered so much as a scratch uh, in the fighting. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmot, the king of Lachish and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Well, Joshua had his commander's. Do was not an act of barbarism or machismo. Joshua knew Israel all too well. He had accompanied this people from Egypt to the Promised Land. He had personally witnessed Moses' struggle to buck this people up when virtually every obstacle caused their faith to sag. He was reminding them in a way they would remember of the certainty of victory so long as they continue to trust and obey the Lord. One commentator calls the act of putting their feet on the necks of these captured kings a kind of sacrament, a visible sign of total victory to come. We might suppose that three smashing victories in a row would have put that beyond doubt. But no reader of the Bible and no one seeking to live the Christian life in the devil's world think thinks that three victories are enough, no matter how smashing. The encouragement that Joshua gave his men in verse 25 is the same encouragement the Lord had given to him on several occasions previously, including in verse 8 earlier in this chapter, just before the beth Horon battle. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, as Deuteronomy required, and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Machadah, Joshua captured it on that day, and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it, he left none remaining. And he did to the king of Machada, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Now, as we pointed out in a previous sermon, this language of complete extermination is hyperbole, exaggeration for effect. There are various indications in the text itself that we are not to take this language literally, and one of them is the statement earlier in the chapter in verse 20, that the survivors of the battle um return to their towns. Joshua is going to encounter those same survivors in several of the towns mentioned in verses 31 to 37. Indeed, the reference in verse 28 appears to be to soldiers, not to the population in general, but may not apply even to all of them. Later in verse 40, we're going to read that Joshua devoted to destruction all that breathed in southern Canaan. But we're going to learn subsequently, both in Joshua and in Judges, that there were a significant number of Canaanites still left in southern Canaan. When Joshua had done what he described in a typically ancient Near Eastern fashion, what he had done was to break the power, the military power of the Canaanite states, and to make them, render them subservient to Israel. Now, the battle... At Gibeon and Beth Horon is the last which is reported in any detail in the book of Joshua. The impression is that the rest of the cities of Canaan fell like dominoes and Israel swept aside what opposition the Canaanites could muster. In the following verses, we will read of seven Canaanite cities or towns that Joshua dedicated to destruction uh, as part of the conquest of the southern part Of the Promised Land. The fact that there are seven cities, seven being a symbolic number, a number symbolic of completeness, may mean that this account is only a summary and that there were other battles fought as well. These seven, in other words, stand for the whole, the entire campaign. Later in chapter 12, for example, we will read of four other southern cities that Joshua had taken but which are not mentioned here in chapter 10. They were hardly the only cities of the area, even the seven together with the four. But having defeated them all, he had broken the back of Canaanite resistance. Israel had not yet possessed the land, that is, she did not occupy these cities, but she had taken the land. She had gained military mastery of it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Machedadah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. (coughs) Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it, and the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Now that's an interesting historical detail. Um, We do not read here that Joshua took the city of Gezer, only that he defeated its army in Chapter 16, verse 10, we will read that the Israelites had not dislodged the Canaanites living in Gezer. And in Judges, chapter 1, verse 29, that the Canaanites of Gezer were still uh, inhabiting the land and living among the Israelites. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day. And struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel went with with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. One of the reasons for all of this repetition, of course, is that almost everyone until the comparatively modern times heard the Bible. They did not read it themselves. And this hearing was an impressive way of making an emphatic point. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debor and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debor and to its king. It's interesting, by the way, that two of the five cities that had come together against Gibeon are not mentioned here, in this summary of the Southern Canaan campaign. We know that Jerusalem was a formidable fortress and Joshua apparently bypassed it to concentrate on easier targets. It would not be captured, if you remember, until the time of David some centuries later. So Joshua's campaign, like other military campaigns, was shaped in some part by both tactical and strategic considerations. So Joshua struck the whole land and the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God had commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Now, neither Kadesh Barnea nor Gaza had been mentioned in the previous account of the campaign in southern Canaan. Gaza was a Philistine city that was not captured at this time and did not come under Israelite domination until the days of David. This Goshen is not the area of the Nile Delta where Israel had lived during her sojourn in Egypt, but a town and area in southern Canaan. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp At Gilgal, our Father in Heaven, what does this passage have to teach us today? Well, a great deal. Help us to learn it and to take its lesson to heart, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Israel had now won three battles with a minor setback in between. And she didn't simply win these battles. She had destroyed her enemies with divine assistance that was obvious to everyone. The walls of Jericho had fallen, leaving the city open to Israelite attack. And a hailstorm had destroyed the fleeing army of the confederation that had gathered to do battle with Gibeon. We wonder why any further battles were necessary. Why didn't the Canaanite cities simply sue for peace and negotiate the best terms they could get from their conquerors. That's what the Gibeonites did. And after the battle at Beth Horon, one would have thought it obvious that such a treaty was the Canaanites' only hope. In chapter 11, 19 and 20, we will read that no city but that of the Hivites, that's Gibeon and its three related towns, made peace with the Israelites. The statement suggests that such peacemaking was a possibility. But no other Canaanite city or state sought safety by that means. No, as it happened, the conquest of Canaan was to take a great many battles, indeed so many battles, that it would be better described as a war. It lasted for a long time, and even when it was effectively won and the issue had been settled, there was still fighting that had to be done. But remember... The narrative of the conquest in Joshua is at the same time a narrative of salvation in the Christian life. The rest of the Bible teaches us to think of it that way. It looks back to this history again and again to draw lessons for the life of faith. The principles on display in the conquest are the principles of Christian experience and the way of salvation. And the fact of the matter is no Christian has to win a few battles before the world, the flesh, and the devil capitulate. Far from it. It's battle after battle after battle. And they don't necessarily get easier as time passes. Indeed, the Christian life is more like the conquest of Canaan than we may realize. The early battles were the easiest, the walls of Jericho tumbled of their own accord. And the confederation of the five cities suffered greater loss from the hailstorm God sent than from the Israelite army. And so it is with Christians. J.I. Packer describes it this way, perhaps with an insight shaped by his own experience as a new Christian, as a college student in England in the early 1940s. God is very gentle with very young Christians, just as mothers are with very young babies. Often the start of their Christian career is marked by great emotional joy, striking providences, remarkable answers to prayer, and immediate fruitfulness in their first acts of witness. Thus God encourages them and establishes them in the life. I've seen this myself in the life of young Christians. Walls tumble down Before them, or so it seems, and miraculous hailstorms level the obstacles in their path. Some of you, I know, remember such times early on in your Christian life. But as Dr. Packer continues, But as they grow stronger and are able to bear more, he exercises them in a tougher school. He exposes them to as much testing as they are able to bear. Not more, but equally not less. Thus he builds our character, he strengthens our faith, and prepares us to help others. Thus he glorifies himself in our lives, making his strength perfect in our weakness. Some television preacher may take your money by convincing you that if you do this or if you give that, all your problems will Disappear and your Christian life will become a pleasant stroll instead of a difficult climb. But the Bible has a different message. It talks of the many tribulations through which we must pass to enter the kingdom of God, of the implacable enemies we must face along the way, of unending battles. The easiest part for Israel was at the first, when she marched into Canaan on dry land and when Yahweh did much of her fighting for her. But then she was left to fight her battles in the more normal fashion. No more tumbling walls. No more hailstorms. Just battle after battle. And battles, no doubt, with casualties. Even if we take the idiomatic statement in verse 21 to mean that no Israelite soldier suffered so much as a scratch, perhaps not the most likely interpretation of those words, that statement would still, in all likelihood, be the same hyperbole as the statement that nothing that breathed was left alive in southern Canaan. These were battles the way battles were fought in the ancient Near East, hand-to-hand, close up, in which men were wounded and men were killed. And even if the casualties were vastly larger on the Canaanite side, even smashing victories have have casualties. Take a lesson from the world and the life of mankind. Surely you notice this, you think about this. We're always uh, searching for solutions to our problems, and we are always failing to find them. Things never really get better, do they? The First World War led inexorably to the Depression and the Second World War. The Second World War was not well and truly won before the Allies fell out and the Cold War began. Violence continued to be a way of life all over the world as a host of smaller wars replaced the one big one. And not only in Korea and Vietnam, but in many conflicts less well-known, but just as vicious. As soon as the Cold War was over, the scourge of terrorism befell the world. Think of Syria and Afghanistan and Pas- Pakistan today. Is the world getting to be a safer place, a happier place? Who thinks so? In the prosperity and relative peace of American life, we have to remind ourselves how many people in our world today live in fear of others. How many are desperately poor? How many are hungry? And one of us who enjoy what for most people in the world is unimagined plenty and comfort? Look at what is becoming of Western Europe and North America. These societies are committing suicide before our very eyes. Feckless politicians, a corrupt media, a pandering entertainment industry, a compromised academy, and a decadent population that clamors only for bread and circuses have together produced a society that no longer can summon up the will to live or the wisdom by which to do so. Birth rates are plummeting. I read the other day that if fertility rates hold, by 2050, that's not very far in the future, there are people in this sanctuary this morning who will still be young adults in 2050. If the fertility rates hold, two out of every three Italians and three out of every four Japanese will be elderly dependents. That's 35 years from now. There's precious little to suggest that these birth rates can be reversed. Governments have been trying everything they could think of to reverse them and nothing has worked As Christianity has collapsed in Europe, as modern culture has transformed life in Japan, people have lost confidence in the future. It no longer matters to them. And people with little or no hope for the future do not have babies. And it's hardly only Italians and Japanese. Their birth rates aren't as bad as some other countries. All of Europe, parts of Asia, and soon North America are seeing steep population declines that are going to fundamentally alter our way of life and in almost no respect for the better. Does anyone, can any thoughtful observer of human life observe our world and honestly say that we are on the cusp of a new day of peace, prosperity, harmony, and social health? Such is human life. We stagger from one catastrophe to the next, finding ever new ways to screw up our opportunities. And we Christians live in that world. And what is worse, we have too much of that world still in our hearts. The sinful tendencies and affections that make living the Christian life a perpetual battle in this world. And there's the devil. No wonder it's a battle. Battle after battle. No wonder the Christian life in the Bible is described as a war that has to be fought to the death. What we read in Joshua 10 is a description of the Christian life in this world, your life and mine. Put yourself in the shoes of one of these Israelite soldiers. He had strode confidently into Canaan as he watched the waters of the Jordan River recede downstream as he crossed the riverbed. He witnessed the miracle at Jericho and then again at Beth as Yahweh did much of his fighting for him. But then came the campaign in the south. Battle after battle, city after city, living off the land, eating what food could be found, watching some of his friends suffer wounds and die in battle. It got old very fast. Battle after battle takes a lot out of a man, not knowing if he would live or die, missing his loved ones, the realization that when this battle was complete, there would be another one tomorrow and still another the day after that. I'm sure you know that the stress of combat decreases the fighting efficiency of an army. Soldiers get physically and mentally exhausted. Their reactions slow They have a harder time making decisions and thinking straight. In many cases, there are more severe symptoms, sleeplessness, the shakes, a paralysis of fear. The more missions bomber crews flew over Europe in World War II or over Southeast Asian targets, the more likely they were to miss their targets. American Air Force commanders regularly spoke of their men as war-weary. Or as punch drunk. One battle is one thing, two or three, but battle after battle, day after day, week after week, month after month, that's something altogether different. I'm not sure there has ever been a Christian who has not, at one time or another, perhaps for certain periods of his or her life, been war weary or punch drunk. Those Israelite soldiers didn't skip back into camp at Gilgal when the southern campaign was over. They were tired. They fell into their beds and slept for long hours straight. I suspect that some of them were surly with their wives and short with their children as they only slowly relaxed and as they shed the stress of weeks, if not months, of constant combat. The longer I have been a minister, the longer I have observed my own life and the life of others, the more convinced I have become that this, this is the principal problem we face as Christians. We can win a battle. We've won them. We have, most of us, if we would only remember and realize it, won some great battles. But one battle or two or three or five or ten do not make a war. It's the long reach of the war that defeats us, or at least wearies us to the point of ineffectiveness. It is this, I think, that explains the phenomenon so often illustrated in the Bible of believers finishing their lives at a lower level of spiritual accomplishment and usefulness than they had once attained. Think of Isaac, or David, or Solomon, or Asa, or Hezekiah. But more than they, you older, experienced Christians, think of yourselves. Do you still have the zeal that you once had to serve the Lord, to bear witness in His name to the unsaved, to read His Word, to be faithful in prayer? I know that some of you do, but I know that many of you do not. You have, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, grown weary in well-doing. Why? Because you are Spiritually sapped. The reservoir of your energy has been tapped and drained. The campaign of battle after battle has sapped your strength. Sometimes you're just weary and you find it easy to think much more about other things than the things of God and your calling to love Him and to serve Him. Other times you're punch drunk and you have a hard time even concentrating on those very things that once were so important to you. Tell me if this is not sometimes your situation. There are times in your life when you find yourself willing to do things you would never have done at other times. And there are times when you find yourself unwilling to or uninterested in doing the very things that you once lived to do. You don't deny that you shouldn't do those things and that you ought to do those. But the pep isn't there. The zeal, the energy you once had has been dissipated by the stress of combat. If only those early battles had been the entire war. But they were not. And the fact is, when we have finished with Joshua chapter 10, the entire northern part of Canaan is, is still yet to be subdued. Many more battles remained. This is the story of the Christian life, of every Christian life told in the history of Israel and the conquest of the Promised Land. No more easy victories. No more sitting still to watch while God himself wins the day. Now it's your turn to fight battle after battle And when time for a short rest is found at Gilgal, it's only to re-equip and ready the army for the battle still to come. Why must this be so? There's hardly ever been a Christian who did not at one time or another ask that question and often in tears. Why must the war go on so long? Take up our entire lives in this world. Why are we never given Time off. Why is there never an end to our enemies? Why don't they just give up? Why is it that if I don't fight and fight hard, so often I lose ground? That then has to be made up in the next battle, which carries me only as far as I used to have been anyway. Who among those who love the Lord and has been a Christian for any length of time has not asked Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? And who has not had to acknowledge the cowardice and the spiritual weariness that gave strength to the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast? No one can say for sure, of course, God's ways are a great deep and past our finding out. But it's clear enough in the Bible That it is in this constant battle that the Lord weans us from the world, strengthens our faith, and makes us more useful to his kingdom. And the fact that that constant battle can so sap the strength of a person that for a time he becomes very unuseful to the kingdom of God is some measure of how important those goals are to the Lord. You know how it is. We love to make a baby laugh, to hear him giggle. We love to see him that way without a care in the world. And why not? All his needs are being met by others. No real effort on his part is required. He carries no burdens in his heart. He does not yet know how many responsibilities he will someday have to take up and discharge. He eats He laughs, and then he sleeps. But we know it cannot last, and it shouldn't last. We want our babies to grow up. In fact, we find it disgusting when adults act like children. So whether we understand it or not, this is our life, a life of constant battles, an entire life spent at war. It will be wearying. It will sap our strength. Our Savior was weary, and on several occasions near near to being punched drunk from the constant battle of his life, a war that he fought for your salvation and for mine. And the servant is not greater than his master. If they hated him, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they will hate us also and make us fight, even if their cause is hopeless. Indeed, some of the bitterest fighting in a war, regularly comes at the very end when the issue is no longer in doubt. Do you know that the Russian army suffered one million casualties? One million casualties in the battle for Berlin at the very, very end of the Second World War. If they can't win they might as well take down as many as possible with them when they go. As the Puritan Thomas Watson reminds us in the title of his great book on the Christian life, there is no other way to take heaven but by storm. Christian, dost thou hear them? How they speak thee fair, your your temptations, your tempters. Always fast and vigil. Always watch and prayer? Oh, you Christians have a rough life. Stop and smell the roses from time to time. Does it have to be that hard? Always fast and vigil. Always watch and prayer. Christian, answer boldly. While I breathe, I pray. Peace shall follow battle. Night shall end in day. Some instances of combat fatigue in your personal file are no cause for reproach or shame. It means you spent your life in the field and were in almost constant battle. But now in blood and battles is my youth and full of blood and battles is my age and I shall never end this life of blood. True enough, not in this life. But then always remember, it is the promised land that is won with all of those battles. The land of rest. And if we have to fight as we do, let's fight bravely and well, as they should. whose God has already told them and proved to them that the day will come when they will have their feet on the necks of their enemies. The greatest, the most disabling problem of human life, what cripples so much of human life and makes it so toxic to others is that men and women are not conscious that they are going anywhere. It is a loss of the future that is sending birth rates plunging across the world. But not so for us, whose God is the Lord, who have faith in Jesus Christ. He promised us a wonderful future, a surpassingly wonderful future. If war must be fought to get there, so be it. No one is ever going to regret a single wound, a single scar that he acquired in that war. Amen.